about all four weeks have been commemorated with a Christmas card. I hope you've been collecting your Christmas cards. We've explained uh, why Christmas is about connections and how Christmas is about family and how Christmas is about worship. And then this morning, we have one more card, the fourth card, and I'd like to discuss with you today why Christmas is about faith, why Christmas is about faith. But before we get started, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, we thank you for the power of your word and the clarity of your word, and Lord, we thank you that you Uh, communicated to us the thoughts behind Christmas, the motivations that were at play when you sent your Son into the world, the mission that was to be accomplished. Lord, I pray that as we delve into that this morning and when we see the faith behind it and the courage that it took, that it would inspire us, Lord, to go out into this new year with great courage and great boldness and practice what we believe. We ask that you work in our hearts this morning by your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name, amen. One year, I ran across an internet advertisement for a company called Design Crafters. They market a line of Christmas cards called Classy Christmas Cards. Here's a description of their product. These classy greeting cards express Christmas in many elegant ways. They are more expensive than most holiday cards, but there is a good reason for it. These beautifully exquisite greeting cards definitely stand out in a crowd. Many of the cards are layered. Many have cutouts, bows, or ribbons. Many have gold or silver heavy embossing. And then it sums it up. If you want to look extravagant, these exquisite cards are for you. Now, I read that and I thought, what a contrast between classy Christmas cards and the first Christmas. For trust me, there was nothing classy or exquisite about the smelly stable where Jesus was born, or the saliva-stained feed trough in which his tiny body was laid, or the barnyard rags they wrapped around him, or the grimy shepherds to whom the angels appeared, or even the road-weary wise guys who paid a later visit. There was no gold embossing anywhere on that first Christmas. To the casual observer, there was nothing distinguished about Joseph or Mary or the scene of his birth. Ironically, classy cards celebrate a humble event. There was nothing classy about that first Christmas. The road that Jesus traveled from heaven to earth was a long and steep and dangerous descent. Our Savior dove headfirst into our muck and our mire, and our mess. It reminds me of a man and his buddies who visited a barbecue house in North Georgia. The men drove an hour to their destination for all-you-can-eat rib night. 
And it didn't take long for a mound of gnawed bones and dirty napkins to pile high. Long after they should have, the men admitted they'd had enough. They paid their bill and they started to leave, but the driver couldn't find his car keys. He looked in his pockets, nothing but lint. He walked out to the car and he looked through the window to see if he had left them in the ignition. Nada. Suddenly it hit him. When he sat down to eat, he had laid his car keys on the tray. Evidently, the keys got covered by napkins and by bones and by waste, and they were on his tray as he emptied his plate into the wastebasket. Tragically, this fellow's car keys were at the bottom of all-you-can-eat rib night. It would have been a long walk home, and neither here his pals wanted to hail a very expensive Uber ride. There was only one thing they could do, and that was to dive in. And for the next 15 minutes, this desperate searcher fished through trash bins full of rib bones and spit up barbecue sauce and cold baked beans and half eaten corn on the cobs and slushy cold slaw and pools of backwash tea and gobs of saliva soaked napkins until he finally found his keys. When the man pulled his arm out of the bottomless pit, it was coated with a thick layer of trash can slime. And this is what Jesus did that first Christmas. Mankind was lost in a slime called sin. And rather than cause someone else to bail us out or drive home without us, Jesus dove into our filthy and fallen world. In Christ God reached down on that first Christmas and he picked what was lost out of the trash. I say this with all due reverence, but our God is a dumpster diving God. Jesus loves sinners like you and me and he refuses to leave us at the bottom of the can. Nobody likes to stick their hand into a trash can of scraps and slobber and spit. Along with a set of keys, who knows what else you might accidentally find. But here's the truth. It took faith and courage for Jesus to leave a blissful heaven and dive into our dumpster. G.K. Chesterton once said, Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. God could have stayed put. He created a perfect world that we defiled and defaced. The creator didn't have to enter our madness, but enter it, he did. Usually when people read the Christmas narrative, they turn to the Gospels. They turn in their Bibles to Matthew and Luke. But the opening act of the story is actually found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9 record the conversation that Jesus had with the Father on the day he left heaven and entered our world. The Bible says of Jesus' departure, verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, 
you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice. When Jesus said his goodbyes in heaven, he had an understanding of what awaited him on earth. He knew that the wages of sin had always been death. And for centuries, Jesus had gazed down from his lofty perch in heaven and watched the Jewish priests take sharp knives and slit the throats of innocent sacrificial lambs. God is spirit, and spirit has no blood or flesh. A spirit can neither cut or bruise or bleed. But Jesus saw the blood flow, and he imagined what it would be like to bleed himself one day. A body was prepared for him. From day one, bleeding was in Jesus' future. Cold steel would open the tender skin of the manger baby. By the time Jesus entered the world, God had tired of patchwork sacrifices. All the blood of bulls or lambs or goats could do is patch us up, not make us new. At best, the Old Testament sacrifices earned for us a parole, but it required a sinless sacrifice to grant a permanent pardon. And God's answer a body made of tissue and vulnerable to tearing was prepared for his son. As in America, Christmas in Japan is a huge commercial success. Japanese shop and give gifts, yet few folks observe Christmas's religious significance. One Christmas, an American reporter was in Tokyo doing people on the street interviews. He asked one young woman, what is the meaning of Christmas? She started laughing because she had no idea. Well, in the interviewer pressed her for an answer. The lady finally said, isn't that the day that Jesus died? Obviously, the lady's answer revealed her ignorance. But in a sense, that woman was exactly right. For we know from our text that on the day Jesus left heaven, he knew that on a day future, Cold, pointed nails would pierce the newborn flesh he now occupied. Jesus understood that a body had been prepared for him. And on the day of Jesus' departure from heaven, he made a bold declaration of faith. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Come what may, piercing steel or angry mobs, or jealous Jews, or even Roman crosses. Jesus was all about doing the Father's will. Jesus had faith that once he had done the will of God, then God in turn would raise him up from the dead. And that faith was exhibited the moment Jesus stepped out of heaven to come to earth. Imagine the faith it took for his feet to spring from the diving board and plunge into our world knowing full well that he was headed to the cross. Hey, Christmas is about faith. That's why we've made such an unusual Christmas card for this week. 
with a diving board, and with the shadow of the crucified. Nothing could be more appropriate. In 1940, a man named Clarence Jordan opened up Koinonia Farm in Americus. He wanted a place to display racial unity and peaceful cooperation right here in Georgia, in the heart of the South. On Jordan's farm, white people and black people lived together in beautiful harmony and equality. Later, a new partner, a man named Millard Fuller, would join Jordan at Koinonia Farm. After working there for several years, Fuller would go on to start Habitat for Humanity. In 1954, the Ku Klux Klan burned down every building on the farm. In the midst of the raid, Clarence heard a voice he recognized. Under one of the cowardly white hoods came the voice of a local news reporter. The next day, the same newspaper reporter showed up to cover the story. He found Jordan in his fields planting seeds. He said, I heard the awful news of your tragedy last night, and I came out to cover the closing of your farm. Jordan just kept planting. The reporter continued to prod him for a response. Clarence just kept planting. Finally, the bigoted, cowardly reporter scoffed at Clarence Jordan. He said, you've got two PhDs, and you put 14 years into this farm. Now there's nothing left. Just how successful do you think you've been? At that comment, Jordan stopped his planning, and he told him, he said, you just don't get it, do you? You don't understand us Christians. What we're about is not success, but faithfulness. And this is what we learn from Jesus in the Christmas story. Our Lord was faithful. He stepped out of heaven to do the Father's will. Christmas is about faith. A faith that doesn't worry or fret over the immediate consequences. But focuses on the will of God. Real faith remains faithful to the task and committed to the call. Because it believes that God's will will ultimately prevail. Thus, it stays on track. Real faith can just as easily be called obedience. For faith and obedience go hand in hand. If I really trust God, I'll do what he says. And it's really just that simple. Several years ago, I watched a YouTube video labeled, A Pastor Recounts the Stupidest Thing He's Ever Done. After all the stupid stuff I've done over the years, I was drawn to that video. I thought, man, I'm not the only one. Well, Francis Chan tells his story. One Sunday, he brought a small balloon and a BB gun onto the platform of his church. He taped the balloon to the curtain on the other end of the stage. And he asked his congregation how many of them believed he could shoot the balloon. Well, about 70% of the crowd raised their hand. Then he said, how many of you will come up on stage and hold the balloon while I shoot it out of your hand? Suddenly, the crowd of believers shrunk to 20 or so. Well, that's when Chan said, all right, who's willing to hold the balloon between your teeth while I take a shot? Only one man dared to put the balloon between his teeth. Chan took aim. He said his original plan was to draw out the suspense and then stop and congratulate the man for his faith without taking the shot. 
But once he was in position, he felt so comfortable that he pulled the trigger. And thankfully, he hit the balloon. Afterward, he was swarmed with church staff and lawyers from the congregation who told him how stupid he had been to put the church in such legal jeopardy. I actually thought about bringing my BB gun today and a balloon on stage this morning. And then I recalled the title of the video, The Stupidest Thing I've Ever Done. One of my New Year's resolutions this year is to avoid stupid. But you can't deny the difference of attitude between the 70% who believed Chan could shoot the balloon and the one guy who was willing to hold it in his teeth. Hey, we all agree that we are saved and we grow and we please God by faith. But what constitutes true faith? Who are the true believers? The people who sit around and talk about their trust in God? are the folks who act and serve and give and initiate and follow through and really live like they believe the things that God has said. Do you know that this is why we have been prepared a body to do God's will? Romans chapter 6 verse 13 reads, Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Your members, they include your mind, and your arms, and your legs, and your hands, and your mouth, your body parts. You should look at your hands. Why are they there? Where did these complex clutchers come from? How did they originate? Your hands and your feet and eyes and ears and legs and ligaments and lungs are more than evolutionary adaptations. God gave you and I a body to do his will. It amazes me the number of body-shaping strategies on the market today. There's body by vi, where you substitute delicious meals for nasty-tasting shakes. There's body by Boris and Body by Roy, both exercise trainers. Then there's Body by Roids and Body by Laser, a couple of shortcuts to exercise. I remember the TV ads for Body by Jake. Jake Steinfeld sold exercise equipment. And I have two more favorites, a Body by Biscuits apron, and of course, Body by Video Games. This can get ugly. Everybody wants to shape your body. But your body belongs to God. It was given to you by God. And he wants to use it for one purpose. And that is for you to do his will. The true Christmas spirit is a spirit of obedience and faith. This is what we learn from a young Hebrew maiden named Mary. Here's a 14, 15 year old girl engaged to be married. Like most girls her age, her hopes and dreams are all mapped out. She and her prince charming will live happily ever after, as Chelsea thinks. That's when news breaks that irreversible changes have incurred in her life. An angel appears to her with words of wonder. He communicates a mysterious message. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. 
Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary could have questioned God's will or bucked at obedience, but she does neither. There's not the slightest squirm in Mary's response. As soon as God's will is revealed to her, she gives it all up. She lays it all down. She surrenders her little girl hopes and dreams and plans and ambitions to the good pleasure of God. A body was prepared for Mary, and she unreservedly gave it to God. And here's the application for us. Are we as ready and willing to let God reverse our course or upset our plan? Are we dedicated to his will or to ours? You know, as a father of four grown kids, at times I wake up at night in a cold sweat, reliving horrid scenes from my children's teenage years. It's the lingering effects of PPSD, post-parenting stress disorder. I'm still in recovery, by the way. In fact, I have this reoccurring nightmare. Have you ever witnessed the meltdown that occurs when you tell a teenager that what he or she has planned for Friday night won't work out? This is just not going to happen. Interfere with a teenager's Friday night plans, and it's like telling a normal, sane person that his right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has been denied. This teenager's ready to throw tea in the harbor and powder his muskets. He wants to revolt from the family. But let me admit, as an adult, at times, I act like a teenager. I've got plans. I've cast in stone. Friday night type plans. And God the Father comes to me and he says rather matter-of-factly, often without even offering an explanation, that what I've planned is just not going to happen. He has an alternative route for the path that I'm on. Seldom is my first reaction like Mary's. Oh, I eventually surrender, but not until I've kicked and bucked and thrown a few cases of tea into the harbor. Why do I revolt? God help me. God help us. And there's a simple reason why it's so hard for you and me to surrender our will to God. We lack faith. And yet Mary believed. She trusted God that his plan for her life was good and even best. Even if it began with some initial pain and involved some major inconveniences. Mary was a teenager, and she accepted the detour, detour to her plans as God's perfect will for her life. Amazing. Ladies, are you willing to be clay in the potter's hands? Men, will you turn your family crest into the white flag of surrender? Will we say to our Lord what Mary said? And I love her words. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. She responds to the angel's announcement. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know of a more beautiful and challenging statement of faith that has ever fallen from human lips. Let it be to me according to your word. 
That, my friends, is real faith. Faith enough to surrender. Faith enough to use your body to do God's will. Christmas is about faith. Christmas is a powerful lesson on faith. The faith of Jesus, the faith of Mary, and to the faith of Joseph. This man had no way to conceptualize and understand the miracle that God worked in the womb of his bride. Yet his faith went beyond where his logic could reach. Joseph took Mary to be his wife, even though it meant living with a host of unanswered questions. Joseph is an amazing example of faith. He teaches us that just because we have questions that we can't answer, and we have questions that God won't answer, neither is an excuse to avoid doing God's will. You know, every few months these days, it seems that somewhere in our country, there's a senseless school shooting. But none has been more horrific than the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. In 2012, a crazed gunman took the lives of 20 children and six adults. In the wake of the disaster, TV news stations brought on pastors and clergy and cornered them with the question, where is God in these kinds of tragedies? Of course, the bigger question should be, why is it the only time we ever think of God is in the midst of tragedy? But we'll leave that issue for another day. Actually, the question most asked was, why did an omnipotent God not stop the shooting? He could have. And of course, the best answer to the question is very unsatisfying. We don't know. God doesn't tell us why, nor is he required to. God doesn't answer to us. There was, though, one pastor who made a helpful comment. He said this, In the midst of tragedy, some folks turn their back and run from God. But many more people sense the tragedy as an opportunity to turn to God and run toward him. And this was Joseph's reaction. Even in the midst of what was painful and confusing and what he didn't understand, he still believed and ran toward God. Because of Joseph's faith, he endured the stares and ridicule of a judgmental public. He bore the stigma of marrying an unwed mother. God had him flee to a foreign land. His faith was brave and selfless and sacrificial. Think also of the faith of the wise men. Talk about faith prompting a person to action. Faith always sends us on a journey where change and surprise await us. These men followed a star a transcendent point of light that shined brightly and never changed. But they followed that star over rocky mountainous terrain and through treacherous water and across barren deserts. That means their faith had to keep looking up. They found the newborn king by never focusing on their earthly surroundings, but by looking up. Faith never takes its eyes off the fixed points of God's living word and God's written word. Just recently, I watched a TV interview with Charles Stanley, the former pastor of the First Baptist Church of Atlanta. Dr. Stanley is a fellow I greatly respect. Next year, he'll turn 90 years old. And he said in the interview, the greatest advice that he could give anyone was this, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Realize that's what Christmas is about. 
Faith that does God's will without worrying about the results. There's a scene in Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Christmas Carol, where the ghost of Christmas past has just visited Ebenezer Scrooge. Obviously, the old miser is impacted by the experience he has with this ghost. But when Scrooge wakes up, he tries to shake it all off. He dismisses what he had been shown in his dream. He says, bah humbug, it wasn't real. He isn't ready to take the message seriously. And I love the words Dickens puts into the mouth of Scrooge. Just a bit of last night's undigested beef. He says of the memory of the ghost, there is more gravy about you than grave. Scrooge tries to write off his encounter with the ghost as a simple case of indigestion. And you know, I'm afraid that there are some people, this is how they respond to the Christmas story. Christmas is about faith. Yet how many of us really take heed to the message? Rather, we open our presents and we pick fruitcake from between our teeth and we We mourn over the credit card bills, but do we ponder the point of it all? Every Christian should roar out of the Christmas season and charge into the new year with a faith on fire, with a renewed commitment to do the will of God. Our Lord Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the wise men all inspire us to behave according to our belief. This Christmas, don't just burp on your eggnog and trip over the bows and wrapping paper and fight the indigestion of too much turkey and dressing. For Christmas' sake, think of ways that God wants you to put your faith into action. Christmas is about faith, a courageous and adventurous and obedient faith. Roy Hattersley is a British journalist. He's also an atheist. In fact, he's a very outspoken atheist. But in September 2005, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Hattersley wrote a column for the British newspaper, The Guardian. He titled it, Faith Does Breed Charity. You see, Hattersley had watched the Salvation Army and other Christian groups come to the rescue of the Gulf Coast residents. And he was impressed. He admired the Christian selflessness and their acts of daring. In his article, Hattersley admits that Christianity embeds a moral imperative in its followers that atheism does not. Hattersley wrote, we atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings. Christians are the folks most willing to act in a crisis. Hattersley commented, it ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles, do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. He realized that folks find a courage and a caring in Christianity that they don't find elsewhere. Again, Hattersley was speaking of the Gulf Coast relief work when he observed, Notable by their absence were teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations the sort of people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. Christians are the people most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. 
And why might that be, I ask? Why are Christians the people willing to dive into helping other people out of their mess and despair? Why are we the dumpster divers? And I have the answer. It's because of Christmas. We learn from Christmas that we follow a dumpster diving God. Christmas is all about courageous faith. Jesus braved a cold, cruel world to retrieve us to God. On December 24th, 1989, Christmas Eve, a Romanian church was celebrating by candlelight. During the service, communist soldiers came to arrest the pastor. As the soldiers approached the church, members started lining up outside, first 10 people deep, then 20, then 30 people deep. Church members encircled the building. Soldiers couldn't break through the human shield. It was a symbolic moment, one of the triggers that brought down the Romanian dictatorship. And it was inspired by the courage we find in the Christmas story. Some people say that the celebration of Christmas really doesn't belong on December the 25th. Four days into winter, isn't it's too cold for shepherds to be tending their flocks at night in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Neither was wintertime the season for a census. I mean, who wants to take a long, cold, rainy trip in terrible weather? The Caesars ordered such decrees in the spring or in the fall. It's true, Jesus was probably born in late summer or early autumn. But that's not to say that Christmas doesn't belong on December 25th. I think its positioning on the calendar is perfect. What better time to recall Christmas Day than one week before a new year? You know, this coming new year seems particularly perilous. Our country's economy is being crippled by hyperinflation. Supply chain problems persist. A pandemic and its viral variants continue to wreak havoc on our health. Violent crime is on an upswing. Devastating tornadoes have just demolished homes across the South. Both Iran and China seem particularly emboldened to solve conflicts with their neighbors militarily. I mean, all kinds of problems face us in this coming new year. And that's not to mention the personal and financial and spiritual challenges that you and yours face. We're frequently reminded that life in a fallen world is not something we can control, no matter how hard we try. It often takes courage to get up and face the next day. And to me, this is why it's appropriate that Christmas comes one week before a new year. For it gives us seven days to ponder the brave and courageous faith of Jesus' descent into this wicked world. And Mary's surrender to the will of God, regardless of the consequences. And Joseph's obedience, even when questions were swirling in his head. And the wise men's trek into the untraveled. All examples of real faith. For this is the faith we need to live in a broken world. Remember the Christian message. It's not, look at what the world is coming to, but look at what has come into the world. Christmas brings us hope and courage. There's a quote I like. 
Success is never final, and failure is never fatal. It is courage that counts. And this is what we need heading into the new year, a Christmas-style courage. We need a dumpster diving, obedience-inspiring, Bethlehem-arriving type of bravery, a faith that does the will of God regardless. You and I need the courage that rises up in the midst of the brokenness around us and fixes what we can. I read a blog this week that stated, if we learn anything from the Christmas story, let it be courage. Christmas is a feast day for the stout of heart. It's a call not just to bake cookies and sip cider, but to be strong, to proclaim our faith more boldly and to make real sacrifices for our relationship with God. An all-wise God will one day mend all that's been broken and restore all that's fallen. But for the moment, God allows the wreckage to remain, and He expects you and I to have the courage to obey His Word and answer His call, even in the midst of that wreckage. So, here's what Christmas is all about. It's about connections, it's about family, it's about worship, and it is about faith. Let's ask God to increase our faith. This morning, we wind down the old year and we gear up for a new. I want to pray for us all that God would give us a courageous faith a faith that does God's will and then leaves the consequences to Him. Would you join me now? Why don't we all stand? Father, we thank You for Christmas.